So this morning is actually the second sermon in a sermon series entitled, There and Back Again. Last Sunday, um, Dick Foth was here with us, and he preached a message on the road to Emmaus, where I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But what the sermon series or the teaching series, There and Back Again, is specifically for. It's specifically for the purpose of exploring the connections between the Older Testament and the Newer Testament because it's important for our faith journey. Now, City Church is a church that's based on three specific things. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church. What that means is, is when we talk about being biblically-based, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God for us. It gives us the rule for faith and conduct. Spirit-led means we believe that the Holy Spirit is active in every area of our life, but specifically as we study Scriptures that the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God brings it alive to us. We're also relationally driven, and the Holy Spirit helps with that. How many of you know that you need God's help in the relationships of your life? Raise your hand. How many of you are married? Raise your hand. There you go. You know what I'm talking about. But when we talk about being biblically based, our purpose for the next several weeks is to open up the Older Testament and connect it to the Newer Testament. And I'll tell you why. I have a growing concern. And the concern is, is that many followers of Jesus only know the Newer Testament. It's all they know. As a matter of fact, maybe the only books in the Bible they've ever read are the first four books of the Newer Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, I want to inform you that there are 66 books in the Bible. And there's a reason for that, and that's one of the things that will be tackled this morning. Now, what we did before the service began, many of you might not have been here, but we did a reading in unison from Isaiah chapter 61. And we read that to prepare our hearts for worship. But you see, Isaiah 61, that chapter in the book of Isaiah was a chapter that people during the time of Jesus had committed to memory. And the reason why was, during the time of Jesus, the Jewish people of Jesus' day had been overrun by the Roman Empire. They were being taxed, they were being militarily crushed, their freedoms were gone, and they were completely overcome by the Romans. Well, the, the book of Isaiah was written during a time when the Israelite people were dominated and overrun by the Babylonian Empire. And during that season, God raises up a prophet by the name of Isaiah, and Isaiah begins to preach and speak for God to the people of Israel while they're being dominated by the Babylonians. Isaiah chapter 61 is where God speaks to His people through the prophet and brings incredible hope. 
And so even today, we read Isaiah 61 during times of trouble. But during the times of Christ, Isaiah chapter 61 was absolutely huge in the lives of the Israelite people. Because if God did it, 700 years earlier during the Babylonian Empire, now he'll do it again during the Roman domination. And so what I'm going to ask that we would do, since you're already seated, would you stand with me? And we're going to read Isaiah chapter 61, the first few verses together. Now picture this. It's during the time of Jesus. The Roman Empire is, has moved into your hometown. Your freedoms are gone. Many of you have lost a family member because of Roman domination. You're being taxed to the ground. You don't even have enough money left to live on. Then all of a sudden, you're in the synagogue, and the rabbi gets up and leads you in this reading. You know the biblical story. The ancient biblical story is is that God provides this miraculous intervention. And God provides in such a way that His people miraculously are set free from the Babylonian Empire. So with that mind and heart, as you kind of read this through the lens of the Older Testament, can we read this out loud together? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's read it together. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Can you give a clap offering to the Lord? Now you may be seated. During the time of Isaiah, Isaiah 63, verses 1 and following, explode onto the scene and give people hope that has been long, long gone. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at how the Older Testament connects to the Newer. And in order to do that, I'm going to ask that my son Peter would come out and join me. So, Peter, come on out. Now, the reason why we're doing this is I'm going to be the Older Testament. He's going to be the Newer Testament. By the way, for those of you who don't know, father and son, my name is Peter. His name is Peter. The day was he was born, I became Pete. And he got Peter. That's how this works. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about the importance of the Older Testament for you and for me. Do you get this? Wait a second. Do you get this? All right. And so in line with this, 
Peter, do you have any kind of opening thoughts as you think about this as we begin to move into it? Why, yes, I do. Um, I, I wear perfectly round tortoise shell glasses, which are designed to tip you off to the fact that I'm really an academic by nature, which means that I like to read old, boring, complicated texts. And I have noticed that a lot of people think the New Testament is like just one of those. You know, it's about all, it's about as enthralling as like a legal textbook or something. The Old Testament, I was just whispered to from a, the Old Testament, it was one of these old, boring, complicated books with stories we don't understand and a lot of law that seems irrelevant. And I kind of just want to say that's not true. I mean, I know that's weird to like stare in the face of that and just go, Psh, no. But the next several weeks are going to be an attempt to try and <clears throat> show the liveliness and the exciting nature of the Old Testament. It's true that in American history, Old Testament, uh, well, really biblical literacy in general has declined. Um, I was reading a newspaper from L.A. in the 1920s for a research project once, and some the, the writer in the newspaper goes, and that guy was a regular old Mephibosheth. Uh, who? Right, a regular, you know, Mephibosheth, everybody's favorite Mephibosheth. Turns out Mephibosheth is a character from the life of David, one of Saul's lame sons, who David happens to give um, care to, what is it, refuge, whatever it is. He took care of him. And in the 1920s in L.A., if you put that in a newspaper, evidently everybody just picked it up. What do you know? And I'm sure there are lots of reasons for the decline of biblical literacy, but I think one of them is probably just the presumption that the Bible's boring. Maybe it's because the Old Testament names are hard to pronounce. Like Mephibosheth. Let's see if we can all say that biblical name. Peter, say it, and they're going to respond. Mephibosheth. Ready? One more time. Mephibosheth. They did relatively well. How many of you are going to use that to name your next child? By the the way, that's a boy's name, just in case you didn't know. Anyway, so all that to say, um, if you find yourself in the position, like, you know, you look at the first two-thirds of this thing, and you just think, oh, I would just ask that you set that aside for the next hour, or sorry, half hour. Because <laughs> that would be long and boring, which is what as we we're of, trying to prove is not the case. It. Yeah, that'd be no yes. good. Yes. That'd be no good. Anyway, yeah, that's my thought. It's not that boring. Don't worry. All right, so listen. What I want to show us this morning is how many of you enjoyed reading Isaiah chapter 61? Do you remember the context of it? Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at Jesus' very first inaugural sermon or teaching in the synagogue. And so if you would, read with me from Luke chapter 4. You can find it in your Bibles on page 834. And here Jesus is. He goes back to his hometown. And in his hometown, he's kind of the favorite son of the little town in which he was raised. So he goes home. And when he goes home, they've heard of him because he's been teaching elsewhere. 
And he's kind of that star kid that went off to college and now he's home and it's this little village and everyone knows each other. They're all family and close friends. And so when Jesus returns home, he goes into the synagogue, into that little tiny synagogue in his little hometown, and Jesus is going is handed the scroll, which he's expected to choose a reading from, and then read. And so the scroll gets handed to Jesus, and he picks up the scroll, and here's what's shocking. Jesus reads the following. Now picture this. The scroll of Isaiah is handed to Christ. Why are they using the scroll? Because Isaiah's the book that the Israelites are studying to find hope because they are oppressed. And so the book of Isaiah, just so you know, is the most quoted book in the Newer Testament other than the book of Psalms. So the book of Isaiah is everywhere. And Jesus has handed the scroll. He takes the scroll and he begins to read. And here's what he reads. Are you ready? All right. He reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Reading on, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he took the mic, dropped it, and he sat down. <laughs> Do you kind of get the sense of it now? Jesus steps into his hometown that is brutally oppressed, and he reads those passages that people's hearts have been craving for God to fulfill, and Jesus looks in that little synagogue and says, the answer is me, and he sits down. Peter, what are your thoughts? You might notice, especially if you read Isaiah 61 twice, that there's a clause missing Jesus stops reading halfway through the verse, right? So the, the verse should read, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That should come next. That's what's written in Isaiah. But he doesn't read that. He stops at the year of the Lord's favor. Does everyone know what the year of the Lord's favor is? That once every 50 years, uh, Israel was commanded to set any slaves free, to return um, land to any bond servants. It was this kind of wiping away of debt and uh, slavery and oppression. The fields were allowed to lay fallow, so they also got a year of rest. Everybody that could get a rest gets a rest. Let's put it this way. All your credit card debt would be wiped out that year. All of you should be shouting for joy right now. College debt would be... Oh, come on. There we go. That's better. Amen. Um, and Jesus, that's where Jesus stops. I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's worth noting that he says this in the synagogue in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. And Galilee is called Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee, going back to the Old Testament, I think Hezekiah has a history of being a place where Gentiles had communities within um, Israelite land. And so there's a strong sense of anti-Gentile fervor in Galilee at this period in time. And so uh, there's a really strong sense amongst the Jews in Galilee that they're waiting for a Messiah who are finally going to get those guys 
out of here. You know, all, they'll go home. We'll find. We'll, they'll go home. We'll kick them back to Greece or Rome or wherever they've come from, Assyria, and we'll have our land back. And so, for Jesus to cut out the clause that says the day of vengeance for our God cuts directly against the nationalism that Galilee is experiencing, the nationalism that has the Galilee on fire. And that's why they try and throw him off the cliff, is because he says this scripture of hope for all people is fulfilled in me today. And they go, you've turned your back on your community. And so Jesus, is connect, Jesus connects himself to the Old Testament in such a way that his mission in life is portrayed as a mission of hope for all people. Jesus rereads the scriptures in his own authority as the Son of God to say, I am here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and implicitly, not today, the day of vengeance of our God. And everybody in the synagogue knows that. I mean, they know this passage, they hear it, they know it's supposed to come, right? If I, had, if I go, Mary had a little lamb, and I go, its fleece was red as velvet or whatever, you know, it's a familiar That wasn't even to close to yeah. what? But Jesus, they, they know it's supposed to come next, and it doesn't. And in that way, Jesus' message, message and mission hits the stage explosively, cutting against what we would assume to be the unrighteous hatred of Galilee at the time. Do you understand that? Now, as we move to another episode from the life of Jesus, we just took his first public teaching. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at his last public teaching. And so the first one happens in the little seaside or in the little town where he was born and raised. And now we're taking a look at on the road to Emmaus. How many of you were at City last week and heard Dick Foth preach? Were you here? I just want to say this. If you were not here last week, I really encourage you to go to the City Church website and look at the message that Dick Foth preached on the road to Emmaus. It was one of the best sermons I've heard. And so with that, Dick talked about Jesus walking with two disciples. He is in resurrected body. He, is, he died the, next, the two days before. He's resurrected that morning. He comes out of the tomb. He meets two Marys in the garden. From there, he, he goes and appears with two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem and heading to Emmaus. In other words, they've given up. They're not staying in Jerusalem. Jesus is dead. They don't believe uh, that he's been resurrected, and so they're walking to Emmaus. It's a seven-mile journey. While they're walking, Jesus appears next to them, and Jesus begins to walk with them in resurrected form, but the Bible says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And while he's walking, we find it in Luke chapter 24, and in Luke chapter 24, Jesus says to them, begin reading in verse 25. Now picture, Jesus is resurrected. Their eyes, their physical eyes have been kept from seeing him. And he said to them, Jesus says to them, to these two guys, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And verse 27, and beginning with, who did he begin with? Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, capital S, concerning himself. Now, please understand, I am a biblical nerd. 
But I will tell you this, of all the events in Scripture, of all the teachings in the Scripture, this is the one I wish I could have heard. Can you imagine walking with Jesus for seven miles, and he opens up the Older Testament, starting with the Law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. Then he moves into the prophets, and using the Old Testament... The first two-thirds of your Bible, he teaches them about himself. And he does a seven-mile Bible study. I would have loved to have been there. But you know what's fascinating? Luke never tells us what was said. The reason why is Luke is challenging you and me at the end of the gospel to go back to the law of Moses to the prophets, and to figure out what Jesus must have taught. It's an encouragement to step into a journey. And if it was important for Jesus to teach that to his disciples, it's important for us as well. And what's fascinating is Jesus does this seven-mile Bible study. They get to one of the disciples' homes, and it says when he breaks bread, their eyes open, they recognize it's him, and he disappears from their sight. The idea is, in my mind, the reason why they were kept from recognizing him was because if they recognized him, they would have never listened to the teaching. But the teaching is absolutely critical to get. And once the teaching has been delivered by Jesus, using the first two-thirds of your Bible, he gives them this tutorial, this teaching on who he is from the Older Testament. And notice in that verse we just read, Scripture is capital S. He's using the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament Bible, and he teaches them about himself. Then he breaks bread their eyes are opened, and he disappears. Jesus wanted them to understand biblically who he was. Why? Why? Here's why. They did not have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They did not have the book of Galatians and Philippians and Colossians. They didn't have the New Testament that you have. So what did they have? They had the Older Testament where Jesus taught them and discipled them how to find him in the Older Testament Scriptures. And now we get the pleasure and the calling to see how Older Testament and Newer Testament connects. All right, Peter, any other thoughts that you have on that? I think it's fair to say that the New Testament is sort of um, the outcome of the, the friction of three things which is the apostles' experience of Jesus, the apostles' reading of the Old Testament, and their call to take this to the world. So when Luke, like, Luke should be about twice its length, right? Luke should get to the point in which he goes, and then he led them through the whole scriptures, and this is what he said, point by point, and you should be able to walk it in seven miles, and at the end of it, you go, wow, I've got it down, I figured it out. Thank you, Luke, for being such a thorough journalist, which Luke evidently is not in this instance. And so the rest of the New Testament is, in fact, the apostles' attempt to fill in the gap, the apparent gap that we find in Luke 24. I, uh, so I'm a pastor's kid. Yes, you are. And I've, I've, I've been to church often. Yes, you have. Preached occasionally. And I've noticed that oftentimes um, in my upbringing in church, 
people were so afraid that I would miss the point that I constantly lost a kind of autonomy. I, a, a lot of people have talked about the way in which as the church has moved forward into the 20th century, we have started inviting people and stopped proclaiming the gospel, which I think is an interesting distinction. I really think there's something to that. And so from my pastor's kid church upbringing, if, if, if I got to this point in Luke and Luke hadn't told me the right answers to how to find Jesus in the Old Testament, I think I'd have freaked out a little bit. There's kind of a like, but what if I get it wrong, right? Like, I've always been fed sermons. I've always gotten the Bible studies. There's those little blank lines. You know that uh, story about the kid in church? He's in Bible study. He's in Sunday school, and the teacher goes, what's gray and bushy and has a tail and big ears? And he goes, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but it's Sunday school, so it's got to be Jesus. (laughs) Here's a moment where Luke is actually asking us to buy in, where Luke isn't going to give us the right answers. It's an invitation to learn what Jesus taught himself, funny enough, without having the exact script. And you can read that one of two ways. You can read that either as Luke has abandoned you, which is how I probably would have felt in earlier days, having always been fed the answers in church, or it's an invitation to go on an adventure to figure out the identity of Jesus. Those are your options. It's either a failed campaign or it's an adventure. So if, if you think that going through the Bible is this safe path where you kind of show up as though this is like a compendium of all the correct answers to the questions you could have, you might be a little disappointed. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of right answers in this thing, and they're basically called the wisdom literatures. If you want to know how life works, go to Proverbs. Otherwise, if you want to figure out who Jesus is, Jesus never walked up to people and said, I'm the son of God. Agree, disagree, strongly disagree, virgin birth, agree, disagree, strongly disagree, resurrection, agree, disagree, strongly disagree, right? He asked people what they thought. Jesus is, you have a 72% chance of getting a question from Jesus if you ask him a question. Did you know that? So here's a moment where Luke invites us to encounter the same adventuresome personality that Jesus is by going to look for him in the scriptures, and he does it by refusing to give us the answers from the outset. You want to go on an adventure? It'll only cost you like 12 bucks. These things come cheap, man. They're actually free on the YouVersion Bible app on your smartphone. And we are not getting paid for saying that, which (laughs) maintains a missed opportunity, I think. So, I started out this morning by saying that I'm a little bit concerned if Christians only know the Newer Testament. I'm concerned. And the reason why is, is that the history of God connecting with people goes for thousands of years before Jesus. And if all we're interested in is Jesus forward, believe me when I tell you, we cannot understand who He is, how He saw the world, and the God that brought Him into this world. I'd want to use it the following way. Peter, how old are you? 22. How long have you been married? (laughs) 17 years. No, I'm just kidding with you. (laughs) Fran, we've been married 26 years, right? Thank you. We've been married. Give Fran a hand for that. We've been married 26 years. 
wow, that kind of threw me off for real. Wow. That was a slow rumble there. That kind of went. <laughs> yeah, the right, college exactly. students got it first. So what was I talking about? Oh, yes. Now I remember what I was talking about. So imagine my son at the age of 22. He comes over to me and he said, Dad, listen, I want to know about my history. And I want to know, Dad, you're the father. I want to know about your history. But all I care about, about you, is from when you met Mom forward. That's all I care about. Because literally, that has to do with the son. And I recognize, Father, that you've got a long history before that, but I just don't really care. All I want to know about is how you met Mom the five years or four years and a half years that you dated, and then the five years of marriage prior to my showing up, and then my story. It's all I care about. The reality of it is there's no possible way my son could really know himself fully or know his dad fully without knowing the rest of the story. Does this make sense to us? And when I show up as a follower of Jesus and say, Heavenly Father, I get that you have this long story and this long history, but all I really care about is when your son steps into this world. And that's all I want to know about. So just give me from, you know, give me the Mary Joseph. I love Christmas. Christmas is great. So give me Christmas. You know, give me that story in the, you know, when Mary wasn't feeling well and there was no place for her in the end. That's all cute and romantic. But I don't want to know anything before that. Let me just say this. It would be as nonsensical to my son to say to me, Dad, don't care about any of your history prior to mom, nor do I really care about mom's history prior to you. And all I really want to know about is, is when the son steps into the world. That's it. Do you get the analogy? So when we look at the Bible and we look at God's Word, our goal is to begin to encourage you to not just consider the Newer Testament. Now, you'll notice for years when I've talked about the Bible, I've called it the Older Testament and the Newer Testament. Do you want to know why? Old sounds like it doesn't matter, especially if you have a new one, right? Who wants the old one? unless you get a new one. Now, some of you are going, but I love antiques. How many of you like antiques in this room? She loves antiques. Way to go. I remember one time I was walking with my Uncle Ted from England. We were walking through New Hope, Pennsylvania, which is filled with antique stores. And I walked up to this antique and I said, you know, Uncle Ted, what do you think? And he looked at the antique and he said, how old is it? And I said, it's 230 years old, and it was $15,000. And he said, in England, that's not even an antique. Something that age we can buy at Walmart. <laughs> said, you're kidding. He said, no. And he went into this whole explanation of how England was better, and then how it's not even an antique till it's 500 years old. I said, you got to be kidding me. Well, I got him back because we walked across the bridge, and we went to Washington Crossing, New Jersey side. And I showed him where the United States pummeled the Brits. I did that. I made sure that he understood who won. And uh, 
because I was 14, and he was very angry with me at the time. But the point of it is, most of us don't look at the Older Testament as though it's valuable, that it's this old antique that kind of has us, no, we look at it and we go, nope, I've got the shiny new one. And if I got the shiny new one, why do I need the old one? Listen, the story of God is a continual story of His revelation of Himself to humankind, and it didn't just start with Jesus. And to understand Jesus, we have to know the story of the Father, because it's Father and what? Son. And if you don't know the story of the Father, you cannot really fully comprehend the story of the Son. Peter, what other thoughts do you have? So... Uh, let's say that you buy everything we're saying. The Old Testament's an adventure. You love God the Father, so you want to get to know God the Father's story. But unlike me, you didn't spend a sizable amount of money to learn Greek and Hebrew in your undergrad. Every time, it just hits me every once in a while that I'm sorry. <laughs> you, I don't know Greek and Hebrew. I don't have a seminary degree. I don't really want to go to cemetery, seminary. I just want to... <laughs> But I'm in, but I've bought in. I like this idea, I want in. We would like to highlight a couple resources that uh, are easy to use that, that can help you along in this process. The, the first of them is uh, called Strong's Concordance. I actually found, do you know this? I found a copy of Strong's Concordance that my mom gave to my dad and like when you guys graduated seminary. And the, back then, you know, it's like this thick and you have to look up all these numbers. Well, now it's free online. I mean, you can just Google. And here's how you would use Strong. Let's say you're reading through the New Testament and you're just kind of struck by a word like cistern. I don't know. All of a sudden you come across the word cistern. You find, you know, I don't know why, but this is just really, it just kind of hit me. If you, uh, you can go to Strong's Concordance, free online, look up the word cistern, and it'll show you every time it appears in the rest of the scriptures. And so they've, um, they've made the equivalence between the Greek and Hebrew words, and they've given them all a number. So you don't actually have to know Greek and Hebrew to know that you're connecting the correct word in Jeremiah to the correct word in John or something. That's a really easy-to-use resource. So if you think this word, like, uh, or, or you came up with wisdom or something, and you're like, wow, I'm just really struck by wisdom today, and you're very deep and... You're just really struck by wisdom that morning. You can just go get a list of every time wisdom is used in the scriptures and see what else you find. Sophia in Greek, Hokma in Hebrew, you don't have to know that. You just have to know it's number 1,176 or whatever it is. And uh, boom, there it is. The whole Bible opens up every time it uses the word wisdom. Another great resource is called the Blue Letter Bible, which is a Bible that highlights blue every time the Old Testament appears in the New Testament. So it's uh, everybody has always seen, you know, you read through the New Testament, and then it'll offset in quotes Old Testament quotations, like the author copy and pasted on some first century computer directly into his or her text. Well, it's also true that the New Testament authors are just kind of borrowing phrases from the Old Testament, but they don't set them off, right? So the Old Testament is the um, common cultural text for Jews of this period. So, um, a great example is if you read in an article 9-11, if there's not a slash, it means call the cops. If there is a slash, it means a national tragedy. Now, in a couple hundred years, if someone in Bulgaria happens to get a copy of an article from America, the chances they can tell that apart is pretty slim because they're not, they're not a part of our culture. They don't come from where we come from. With a blue-letter Bible goes through the New Testament and highlights blue, all those phrases that first century Jews would have clicked. 
like would have caught on to. Um, and a great example is in the beginning of John, it says, in the beginning was the word. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures reads identically in Genesis, in the beginning, God. So if a first century Jew cracks the first uh, chapter of John, they hear, in the beginning, God, but instead it's not God there, it's the word, and it turns out the word is Jesus. So if you want to hear those more subtle resonances in the New Testament, the Blue Letter Bible is the place to go. You can get it as an app. Um, and really any study Bible, the ESV or the NIV, they're all good. But if you don't want to go use another resource and you don't want to go buy another study Bible, I counted once, we have 68 Bibles in our house. Do not buy us another Bible. <laughs> His birthday's in July, so is mine. We don't need two more Bibles this year. We're, we are set, my homies. If, if you don't want to buy another Bible or you don't want to go online, how about just like paying attention to the footnotes in the Bible you've already got? You know, I, I mean, a lot of people don't, right? So when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All you have to go is down to the bottom of the page and it'll tell you it's a direct quote from Psalm 22. That's interesting. I mean, how many times have you read the crucifixion event? How many times has that taken you to Psalm 22? Well, Jesus, as he's about to assumingly go down into death, hell, and the grave, decides, you know what? Before I leave, I need to remind them of this one psalm. And all you have to do is check the footnotes. It'll tell you exactly where it is. We've been reading the Bible for 2,000 years. We have a couple tricks up our sleeve, and you can just read them at the bottom of the page. Dad? Thank you, son. When you look at the passage in Luke 4, where Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, it's footnoted. And it tells you right there, this is Isaiah 61. So what I'm going to encourage you to do, and what Peter's encouraging you to do, what we're encouraging you to do, is when you read the Newer Testament, when you see a footnote, please use it. Take the time to do that. The other thing I'm going to encourage you to do is some of you sitting here have never read the Bible. You come to City on a Sunday morning. That's great. We're thrilled that you do that. We're thankful that you're here. But I also want to encourage you, begin to read the Bible on your own. Begin in the Gospel of John. If you've never read the Bible, just begin reading through the Gospel of John, but pay attention to those little footnotes. And when you see the letter A, look to the bottom of your page. Look down there and try to understand why the, new, the people that made the NIV Bible think it's important that you would know that. So, Peter, is there anything else that you can think of as we move forward into this teaching series? Uh, I think I just want to share a testimony, put it that way. Um, so, we, we've read the Emmaus passage twice now in the last two weeks, and when, as they walk to Emmaus, they get to Emmaus, they sit down with Jesus, he breaks the bread, and it says their eyes were opened. So you'd think that'd be a pretty common phrase in the Old Testament. It's not. It appears twice, once in Genesis 3 and once in 2 Kings 6. Both of them are instances where people's eyes are opened to apprehend a spiritual reality they previously had not seen. For Adam and Eve, it's the moment when they notice their nudity becomes, when they notice their nudity and it becomes shame. It's kind of a downward slide. Their eyes are open and they see something that maybe they shouldn't have seen in the first place, 
The second reference in 2 Kings 6 is a prayer that Elisha prays for his manservant, as it says, which I'll never be a manservant. No, um, so Elijah has his manservant, and they're, um, they're waiting for this oncoming army to just come down the valley and wreck them. <clears throat> this, is, this was a bad move. Waging this war with Syria, <clears throat> not our best idea. And Elisha prays that his servant's eyes would be opened, and his servant looks up on the mountain, and there are countless chariots of fire, which is where the movie comes from. It's this army of angels, like, behind them. You know what I mean? I am not the biggest guy, but I have a couple friends that are varsity athletes at UVA, and I've had a couple thousand of them on fire on a mountain behind me. Man, bring it, you know? <laughs> so he prays that his servant's eyes would be opened, and he apprehends the spiritual reality that changes his current circumstances. That's true for both Adam, that's true for Adam and Eve and for Elijah's servant. They see a spiritual reality that changes their current circumstances. And it says in Luke, their eyes were opened. Now I can only assume that that means somehow in seeing Jesus break the bread, they perceive a spiritual reality that changes their current circumstances. Namely, they actually believe Jesus has come back from the dead. And I, I wonder even if there's a resonance between the, the fact that there are chariots of fire and they say to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us. Luke is trying to bring us back to kings to remind us that seeing Jesus in the community of broken bread leads us to a spiritual reality that changes our current circumstances. And without second kings, you don't get that. More honestly, without the research of a guy named Richard Hayes in his book, Reading Backwards, Figural Christology in the New Testament, I wouldn't get that either. But now you can have it for free. Um, that, that was a moment for me that really made me think there is really something to this. There is really something to the way in which the New Testament authors are using the Old Testament. Yes, sometimes it's prophecy. Yes, sometimes it's um, debates about the status of the law. It's all these complicated things, but it's always edifying. So take the time. One final brief analogy I'd like to give with the Older Testament is this. Not that long ago, my brother Scott came to town, and Scott and I sat in our living room. My son was not there, but my two daughters and my wife were sitting in the room. And my daughters began to ask us questions about what it was like to grow up. And I can tell you this, my daughters did not move for over two and a half hours. They sat there and asked us questions after question, after question about growing up. There was a depth of their understanding of me that they had never had before. I think one of the reasons why they waited until my brother was in the room to ask those questions is they wanted to make sure that what their dad told them was true. I'm convinced of that. But we sat there for over two hours, and they hit us with question after question after question. When we exited that room, my older daughter came up to me a day later and said, that was an awesome time. Awesome. And she said, I understand you better. What I want to say is this. We're going to take the next several weeks, and we're going to walk through the Older Testament and show you how it connects to the Newer Testament. 
Many of us as Christians, all we want to hear about is prophecy. Show me the prophecies. How did Jesus fulfill them? I want to tell you, that's not the only purpose for the Older Testament. The Older Testament, as we discover together, is going to give you your depth of faith and trust in Jesus that goes so much deeper than what the New Testament brings us, that when we exit these several weeks, I can guarantee you that your appreciation for, your, for Christ, your understanding of Christ, the depth of faith that you can put in Jesus is going to go to a depth that you never thought possible. Because before Jesus shows up on the scene, there are thousands of years of stories of God connecting to people. And yes, they do point to the Newer Testament and they point to Jesus. But as we look at them together, I believe that you will have a depth of appreciation for Christ like you never could have imagined. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? Let's stand together. And as we stand together, I'm going to encourage you to do something. Whenever we have a sermon at City, whenever we have something like this or a sermon, what we do is the notes for the teaching are right below the sermon, video or the audio file. If you click on that, you're going to find some resources that my son and I have put together that are embedded at the bottom of the notes. There are YouTube videos that we have links to. How many of you would rather watch a movie than read the book? Come on, be honest. Would you rather watch the... How many of you would rather read the book? Oh, my goodness. There we go. I'm a movie watcher. He's the book reader. Now, when you click on those links, it will take you to YouTube videos by some of the people that really help you to understand the Older Testament as it connects to the Newer. So I want to encourage you, probably by tomorrow evening, the video from this teaching will be online, the notes will be online, and if you scroll to the very end, you're going to see some names of some people. If you click on those, you will find YouTube videos that you can watch. Now if we could close our eyes just for a moment. In the song that we're about ready to worship God through, he's going to be mentioned in this song. My prayer over the next several weeks is that the God that we worship and the God that we sing about and the God that we trust in will become so much bigger than we could have ever imagined because we're going to understand his story through the Older Testament how it connects to the new. Could you take just a moment to stand in his presence and open up your heart to him? Would you dare to make the commitment before God that you're going to be willing to take this journey because you're committed to knowing God better? Let's just take a moment, make that commitment to God as the worship team leads us.
Isaiah, and he announced to the people in that little synagogue in his own hometown, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, and he sat down and said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And may he give you peace. Let's remain just for a moment in worship 
You can slip out when your heart is full. If you would like prayer, the prayer team will be down front to meet with you and pray for you. But God bless you. See you next week as we continue in the teaching series declared there and back again. Let's worship him. Show us your glory. Show.
changes everything. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. With tears still on your face, I heard you you came I knew that you would come you sang my heart it woke up I'm not afraid to see your face I am glad that you came I knew that you would come. Oh. You 
And you are a miracle-working God. You are a miracle-working God. You are a miracle-working God. And you are a miracle-working God. Face. 